Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Hackable You podcast. As always, you're joined by me, Ed, your host, and my two co-hosts and colleagues in Hackable You, Will and Alex. Evening, guys. How are you doing today? Good evening. Really, really well, thanks. Doing really well. Good, thanks. Nice. I mean, this weather, last time we did this, it was nice and sunny, very warm, could have a beer out in your garden or, for me, a car park if you really want one afterwards, and then... Today it's been utterly miserable. Rain, 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 go away. Come again another day. Sort of hard to uh, picture that we're almost in mid June because the weather lately, yeah, really hasn't reflected the fact that we're supposed to be in summer. Very, very annoying. Right. So this week we've got some good discussion planned. A couple of news topics we want to focus on. Our topic of the week is going to be looking at subdomain takeovers and secrets from the SOC will bring you our incident response experience and we'll touch upon incident response and tabletop war game scenarios and how important they are to incorporate into your security operation. And on that note, let's just jump straight into the cyber news. Okay, here we are again. First up, we're looking at Fitness Depot and their data breach. And this is a really interesting twang because of their internet service provider. Um, Alex, what what can you tell me about this one today? Fitness Depot, uh, based in Canada, an e-commerce uh, website, recently been hit by quite a large data breach. It has all the hallmarks of a mage cart attack where we get some malicious JavaScript injected into a web page to steal customer data. Uh, they've described the attack as being caused by a misleading web form, and that's in, in quotes, misleading web form. What I found quite strange slash interesting here is that they went on to say that this breach was caused because their ISP failed to activate their antivirus. It's just a really bizarre statement to make, and I'm still trying to get my head around what they might have meant by that. Yeah, uh, what does that mean? Uh, surely that draws lines of responsibility here. To link that back to an internet service provider, which is kind of your core networking element, is yeah, is a very unique twist. Um, to pass the blame to an ISP is one thing. To then single out the fact it's because they didn't enable their antivirus, which can mean a whole host of things, it's a little bit confusing. Uh, what do you think they actually mean by that? It makes me wonder if they had anybody with security expertise review the comms before it went out. Because to a security professional, that doesn't actually make any sense. And I still don't know what they meant by it. It's strange, isn't it? Because I think if you take it apart, originally I tried to take it apart into its individual components to work out if there was just a slip of the tongue somewhere or they typed the wrong word or something. So originally I thought, well, maybe they, maybe when they, they said ISP, they meant something else. But that still doesn't really, that still leaves the whole antivirus bit there. I think it, it just goes to show with, with cyber attacks, with data issues like this, it's all about understanding where the issue has happened or taking ownership of that incident and being able to work forward through that. And it is so easy for kind of the blame game to take over, especially in organizations where cybersecurity, information security might not be their kind of uh, main focus or might be really, really, they might have a very immature uh, cybersecurity or information security framework or team to blame somebody else based on some kind of high level knowledge or understanding on antivirus could be quite a, a get out for them and it might be the strategy they opted there but it just doesn't stack up with 
it just doesn't stack up with me to blame an ISP for antivirus issues. I don't know how many ISPs here that I've worked with in the past who we even get to understand what antivirus they're running, if it's corporate or whatever. It's just oddly confusing. So obviously one angle of this is the ISP blaming and the antivirus using as an excuse, but we should actually look back at the data breach and understand what happened there. So Alex, what data was stolen and how much of it? It's a little bit unclear as to how much specifically was stolen, but what was stolen was data including names, addresses, email addresses, telephone numbers and credit card information. Uh, so when we're looking at credit card information, that is very typical on an e-commerce website of that sort of mage cart attack. It's it, it's all been it's all been quite unclear, and I think in this case they've just had a bit of an, a snafu with their comms. They haven't run their comms through the right people to get the technical information in there that they require. What is the definition of a snafu? Clearly, a mage cart attack comes on. <laughs> 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 New hackable you headlines. The company has been impacted by a mage cart snafu. <laughs> major snafu. <laughs> <laughs> All right, nice one. Well, I guess we'll watch this story a little bit closer, see if any more information comes out, see if we can understand more into the ISP, not activating their antivirus, and actually how this breach has happened. Next up, something that's been in the news most recently from recording this episode, which is all around a uh, ransomware attack against the Japanese car giant Honda. So again, we start to see ransomware interrupting operations on a major scale. Previously, we've seen it for the like, obviously, WannaCry years ago, taking out NHS, not Petya impacting the shipping giant Maersk. And it's a common story we're starting to see now where ransomware is completely disrupting major operations. So Honda are the most recent people to be impacted by this. Uh, Will, you've had a nice deep dive into this. What's the story behind the Honda ransomware attack this week? So this upsets me a little bit, and that's probably because I'm a fairly long-term Honda motorcycle fanboy. Um, oh, no. That's so a shame. We're going to have to change now. Go buy a Yamaha. No. <laughs> it's not that bad yet. Um, so it's it's quite an interesting one. Details of, details of it are kind of um, sort of mixed, really. Um, so I'm going to talk about there's a, there's a blog by, um, by Malwarebytes um, Labs um, who often do kind of um, technical deep dives into malware, which is actually, I generally find quite a good blog to kind of um, add to your favorites, really. Yeah, Some really, stuff really good information on most of their blogs a lot of the time. Um, so I I know that this, um, the Honda obviously released some details that they were, they were victim to a, um, an attack, but they didn't go into much details themselves. I think most of, most of the technical details have come from um, the fact that someone noticed that there was a upload to um, Virus Total um, that mentioned the Honda um, Honda domain, and from that, I think someone was able to get a piece of the um, uh, a copy of the of the malware. So the malware looks like it's um, a, a snake variant, also known as um, Ekins, which is obviously snake spelled backwards, um, and a Pokemon. If you didn't know that. Um, <laughs> I did I did not and I probably should given my age but no I did not know that. Um, so there's on the on the blog um, go and check it out there's some sort of uh, they basically done some, um, they basically decompiled uh, the malware um, to have a look at it on a kind of machine level and 
Um, what's quite interesting about it, I think, is that there's there's various parts of the malware where um, the a Honda domain has been hard coded into the into the malware. So it's clearly clearly saying that was very much built for the pure purpose um, to target Honda, um, as opposed to them just becoming unlucky and picking up some malware. Um, so it, you know we're definitely we're easily in APT territory, of course. I'd say um, there's been mention of the fact that. Um, you know, was it going after their uh, industrial control systems? Um, I've not seen any hard evidence or, or intel really to kind of prove that it was targeting the ICS. I think that's a bit of a um, perhaps a you know a bit of a guess um, at what the ultimate target was. Um, Honda, there's also blogs around and mentions that Honda employees have been um, unable to access. Um, their network via the VPNs, a lot of them have been told to not even log on at all. Um, so it sounds like they're having a pretty rough time at the moment. There's uh, some really inf interesting information, right, that uh, people at Bleeping Computer managed to contact the operator of Snake Ransomware, and they basically neither denied or admitted to being behind the Honda cyber attack with a statement that basically says they will not share details about the attack in order to allow their target some deniability. Which, firstly, okay, lots of these mass attacks, especially the people like Maze, like to claim responsibility for it. There's always that kind of credit or kind of uh, hacker ego that comes behind it. But it's, yeah, it's it's an interesting stance to see that somebody has actually gone out their way to contact the operators behind there and ask directly, are you behind Honda? So I totally agree with you. Is there are the likelihood of some form of targeted attack, especially if it's hit something like ICS advanced persistent threat territory rather than just kind of caught in the crossfire of ransomware being pinged around the ether. I think there's there's also mentioned the blog about um, RDP being a potential attack vector and I think there's again just con continuous um, you know instances where um, these APTs are just catching those low-hanging fruit you know RDP, SMB you know ports and services which you know, should really be kind of managed quite, quite um, you know, stringently. Um, are still getting snapped up, you know, even in 2020. So Honda spokesperson has basically come out and said that Honda has experienced a cyber attack that affected production operations at some US plants. However, there is no current evidence of loss of personally identifiable information. They also went on to say that we've resumed production in most plants and are currently working towards the return of production of our auto and engine plants in Ohio. So straight away here, it seems that it's not targeted to one specific location, one specific office, which, you know, you start to think about how their network structure, the ability to impact multiple points, potentially multiple ICS systems really goes to show the potential impact this has had and i think honda are naturally being quite uh quiet around this whilst they uh respond to it but i think this has had a significant impact on honda and uh, it's going to come out how severe this attack was against them i really love that statement that says uh, we have no evidence of information being stolen which actually translated means we're not sure or we haven't got the visibility to tell if it has gone yeah, or that we're still looking. And I think whenever cyber attacks come out at the minute, there's such a swarm of questions asked, not only by authorities to try and understand what's happened, but also by 
researchers and everyone to measure the situation we all know we've all been there that security incidents take time to investigate and if you're going to make a statement you need to be absolutely damn sure what you're saying is correct i guess there's also a, a chance that you know so manufacturers like honda and you know any of the kind of giant japanese already uh, automobile sort of industry you know one of the key things which they probably get targeted as well is um, after, uh, is when people are after intellectual property, you know, about information about things being built, designed, developed. It's really, really obviously very valuable for um, for all sorts of reasons. So you do, you do have to wonder as well is, you know, was the whole ICS thing a bit of a decoy for a... Because that's if I was going to attack a big giant like that and I wanted that kind of sensitive information, you know, there's nothing that's going to, it's a bit like a denial of service stack, isn't it, really? There's nothing that's going to get, yeah. get Honda panicky more than all, all the ICS systems going down whilst you're exfiltrating sensitive data somewhere else. It does trigger a switch in my mind, which is the way that connected cars are coming and the ability to have, you know, all of these controlled by apps and all of the data that these cars are kind of collecting. Look at the likes of Tesla, right? If people are able to infiltrate these companies' networks, who knows what they'll be able to do? Are we going to live in a world whereby a simple cyber attack on a car manufacturer means that you can now completely lock everyone in their cars, control of it, you can put the brakes on, you can even cut the engine off? That's the real worry here is that if car manufacturers start to get targeted massively and operations are really impacted, who knows to what extent that will have and, and how will it impact public safety? There's one thing targeting companies like Cognizant who are running services and other types of industry but the moment you start to get into a place which are is so heavily regulated around safety safety for the people that are using them all around you know crash testing all of these amazing things that the car manufacturers have to adhere to are they even thinking about the implications that a cyber attack could have on the safety of their vehicles that is something that i want to watch and would love to discuss more all right that's a couple of topics that we'll talk about this week and we're going to jump into topic of the week Cool. All right. Topic of the week. This week, we're going to talk about a specific type of uh, attack that we have all dealt with in the past, something that is kind of bubbling away that, from my personal point of view, should be spoken about more to kind of bring it back into the limelight. And that is a subdomain takeover. So, Alex, why don't you give a go of educating us around subdomain takeover this week? So, a subdomain takeover is at best going to cause you some reputational damage and at worst, it's going to have some legal ramifications for you and it could even lead to some customer data loss. Now, what a subdomain takeover is, is you have your subdomain. So, for example, if we had blog.hackableu.com, that would be our subdomain. And the blog is hosted on a cloud provider. For example, Azure, AWS, GCP, IBM, many cloud providers available. The main subdomain, blog.hackableu.com, would have a DNS entry which pointed towards the cloud provider platform. Now, for whatever reason, at some point, the cloud destination no longer exists, or maybe it never existed. But what did exist is on that subdomain, a DNS entry pointing towards the cloud destination. Now, where the takeover comes in, it's where a threat actor is able to register that cloud destination. So if our blog on the cloud provider expired and the threat actor took that over, 
there would then be a blog.hackerboyu.com subdomain pointing towards whatever the threat hacker wanted to host on that cloud provider. Now, this could be anything from pornography down to illegal content, or it could even, in some cases, be phishing. It could be harvesting your customer data all through the guise of being related to your company because it's one of your subdomains. What's your thoughts on this, guys? This could have such a big impact from reputation because this subdomain, for all intents and purposes, belongs to you and your customers only see this subdomain as being part of you. I guess there's two things that come to my mind straight away. The first one is, okay, so the the destination, the cloud-hosted provider, that IP address or application, whatever it might be, is now null and void and it's kind of there for the taking. What are the chances that, okay, something just spins up in that IP range that it might be associated to or pointed to that um, is not owned or hosted by you, that is a mistake or, you know, an accident because you have poor DNS management, but also detection. How are you supposed to monitor this? How is What is an attacker doing to understand that that is their threat vector in? What are the reconnaissance tactics they're using? What part of the kind of hacking lifecycle and information gathering are they doing to understand that that is their point in which they can either utilise the name brand for kind of uh, phishing attacks and legitimacy behind their attacks, or even as a way to kind of host free content. So subdomain takeover is really big in the bug bounty community. And what's really, really interesting is the response from companies. So some don't even see this as a problem. So some will not pay a bounty, whereas others will reward this information as saying, thank you for letting us know about this. So there are automated tools out there without going into too much detail, which a threat actor can use to scan the web for these types of vulnerabilities. And what you're looking for is you're looking for a DNS entry that points to nothing essentially. So it points somewhere that used to be there or somewhere that hasn't quite yet been created yet. And as you said, that is down to poor DNS management. Does it also, would you say, I mean, you know, if you're a company, if you've only got one subdomain, then, you know, it's going to be fairly straightforward to keep on top of that. but. When you start getting to large companies, you know, you start having hundreds and hundreds of subdomains. It, it then becomes quite a task to, to keep track of all those subdomains that likely have been kind of built all at different times. So they all expire. And, you know, you don't want to be in a position of just having a spreadsheet, you know, because that'll be totally unmanageable once you get past a certain point. Again, it goes back to the basics, right? Think about how an attacker and what what they do and their phases. So they start with information gathering, they then move on to gaining access, maintaining access, exfiltrating data, and then clearing up their steps. So you have to go right to the start of that kind of cyber threat kill chain, understanding the recon techniques and understanding who's querying DNS, where they're querying it from. Now, that is a massive task. People query DNS all the time. But there are some really useful tools out there. I know for a fact the likes of Cisco Umbrella have a really good way of uh, understanding what kind of mil- malicious DNS traffic looks like. Um, but you should be monitoring your DNS records, having an understanding about what's there um, and good kind of uh, housekeeping of them. You know, if you're buying a domain for a marketing campaign or you're setting up a subdomain for a particular piece of work, understand how long it needs to be there for and set some kind of rules in place to constantly look at your DNS records and uh, keep them kind of up to date and uh, tidy. Another question here is, okay, once the incidents happen, how do you respond to it? 
you know, what are the steps you need to take in order to mitigate the risk that might be impacted with your subdomain being taken over by an application that you can't even control? So what you need to do is you need to understand how you can sever ties between yourself and the content that you don't have control over. So in this instance, it's getting rid of that DNS record. So you have your subdomain on one hand and you have that instance that you don't control on one hand. And in the middle is that DNS, there'll be a DNS C name in there. Sever that, delete the DNS C name, get that record completely gone. And while it won't remove the content that's being hosted by an outside person, what it will do is it will remove your subdomain from being associated with that content. So in really, this is actually quite a simple thing to try and fix and uh, a quite a quick one. You know, caveat being it's all to do with your kind of TTL times and its ability to kind of replicate across the Internet. But here, f- identifying the issue and fixing the issue are two very different things. And a lot of your time and focus needs to be on the monitoring and detection of this abuse happening and less so on your ability to respond because removing a DNS entry or dealing with DNS management actually is quite a simple task. As opposed to something like ransomware, which Honda have just gone through, which is, you know, could be easier to detect with advanced detections and anti-ransomware endpoint detection response tool sitting your endpoint, easy to detect the the characteristics of ransomware but once that is in your network and has run it takes a lot of effort to contain mitigate and remediate that threat so you can see there they're kind of opposites in how you would deal with these scenarios in a security operation which just goes to show the breadth of kind of monitoring and everything that you need to do. Yeah, Ed, you're completely right. This is one of those instances that is relatively easy to contain and to respond to, but actually detection may not come for some time. Uh, we spoke in one of our previous podcasts about like that threat intelligence being a bit of a luxury. And in this situation, I think it's the same. This is something that may not be detected through your normal monitoring. It's something that you may not pick up unless you're specifically looking for it or if you have a vendor specifically looking at it for you. Uh, what I do think is similar between this type of attack and a ransomware attack is you st- is the preparation. If you are you know already searching for this sort of thing, then it will not develop into a full scale incident. Uh, similarly with ransomware, if you're if you've got the right preparations in place in terms of your layers of security, your defense in depth, and your backups, you're less likely to be impacted when you get a full blown incident. Well, Alex, thank you very much for educating us on subdomain takeover this week and our reminder to everyone is make sure you understand your DNS and how you monitor DNS within your organization. So here we are, Secrets from the Sock, the exclusive segment to the Hackable You podcast and something that makes Alex smile every time I say that sentence. This week we're going to take a deep dive into instant response and part of a little bit of a series I think we want to do with Secrets from the Sock is really dive into IR into a good level of detail. I think there's a lot that we can learn here and of course a security operations centre is a main function of a security operations centre is to deal with instant response. So I think there are generally lots of secrets that we can we can express here. We want to touch today upon tabletops also called war games or run-throughs or scenarios, it is your ability as a team to sit down and run through a mock cybersecurity incident to test your ability to be able to respond to that incident. This is a key part of the preparation phase within an incident response framework. And I personally have seen a lot of value from doing this from small to massive security teams. What I really enjoy about tabletop exercises is that it's your chance to get it wrong. 
it is this is your chance to make a mistake and to learn from everyone and learn from what you're doing. You don't want the first time you make a mistake to be when you're dealing with live ransomware. And you don't want the first time you're dealing with a certain situation to be when you're, you know, completely under pressure, completely under prepared. The tabletop is the time to iron out all these issues and to understand how you can flow as a well-oiled machine as an instant responder and as an instant response team. So you can either do internal IR tabletop exercises when you're working with different members of your team, or you can involve different organizations, or you can involve different teams within the organization, such as the network team, the server team, the storage team, and run through mock scenarios and see how they respond and see how they work with you to get to the resolution. It's so much better to do it beforehand than have to make it up as you go along and be unprepared during a live incident. If you look at some of the high-performing teams that are there, so Formula One pit teams, the engineers there, or top NFL teams, they spend hours upon hours running through plays, hours upon hours practicing how they can quickly uh, maintain a car on the track within the pit. And it just goes to show with with the amount of this practice and understanding how you as a team or you as an organisation will respond to this, when the event does happen, you're so well prepared to deal with it. It takes me back to the saying of failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And exactly what tabletop exercises do is give you an edge on your ability to respond to an incident. I mean, Will, we've done we've dealt with we've done tabletops together in the past and uh, multiple approaches you can take with, like Alex said, locally with the team within security, wider with IT teams, even further out into the business. What's your experience of tabletop exercises and why do you think they're so important? I'm not sure what you guys think about this, but I think from experience, um, the tabletop exercises tend to kind of run with certain almost objectives. So some some tend to be more um, about testing the processes in place to make sure that they're all correct and working or whether they need um, changing. And then there's perhaps more technical ones that kind of test your or test the team's technical um, capabilities and kind of looks for potentially uh, holes or areas that need uh, further training. Ultimately, it's like what you said earlier, really, it's it's about, um, you know, training hard, fighting easy. You know, it's about preparing everyone, making sure that the processes are um, are sufficient and, you know, when, it, when I say this about the process being sufficient in that, you know, making sure that there's nothing that is basically slowing the team down, holding the team up, um, because if there is, then those those processes or those things, those roadblocks need to be removed, um, you know, sooner rather than later. A good um, uh, a, a good table of exercise will be one that has issues. It will be one that you, you hit that hurdle and no one knows what to do. Yeah. You've identified a potential scenario where everyone's sitting around scratching their heads. It's happened so many times. Even the best IR teams will have those moments where they go, oh, you know what? We're not actually sure on what we're doing here. And that's just the kind of rigmarole of running that security team. People come and leave. Knowledge goes out of the team. Knowledge transfer sometimes doesn't happen. So don't think that you have to have a tabletop exercise, which is all singing and dancing that has no issues. I would actually be worried if that was the case because you're probably missing something one that has issues, one that has actions that come out of the back of it, is exactly what they're there for and is a positive sign of a good tabletop exercise. I'd also say make sure that they are um, planned in a way that is consistent with real threats. You know, when you're when you're designing and, and modelling that, you know, what's going to happen during the exercise, 
there's no good kind of making up something that is you know totally unlikely to happen or or completely random you want something but you know you're seeing this threat out at the moment ransomware is a big problem at the moment how can we how can we test our response to a ransomware incident and there are multiple levels in which the table to vector size will be beneficial right so you Will, you said that it kind of tests processes really good and it depends how deep you want to go into it. So you have real technical level tabletops where you're looking at who within your team has the ability to interrogate the certain things, where you're going to get the information from, really granular run-throughs of where you go and how you respond to it. The kind of next level up from there is probably around your internal team process or how you might investigate a phishing email, ransom, whatever it might be, and looking at the kind of decision points along that kind of instant response journey you'll go on you can go right up to the level where you're doing this with the executives in the business right sit there and go okay on a significant data breach that is going to have an external you know reputation impact on the company it's not going to be the security teams that are dealing with that it's going to be the ceo the cio some really really senior execs and being able to have some form of war game or incident response crisis management run through with them is really important it helps in a board understand the impacts of a security incident onto the organization. Not many people at this level would have been through a run-through scenario about what a cyber attack looks like on their organizations. They've probably done things with physical security threats or especially working in and around London with the most recent threats on terror. They have an understanding about what might happen if their immediate area was to go into lockdown because of a terrorist attack. They need to be doing this for cyber attacks as well so they understand what parts of the business start to turn when things really do hit the fan. External teams such as your communications or PR teams, your data privacy teams, people that will engage with the authorities, um, even to the likelihood of people with marketing, if you're dealing with kind of brands or anything like that, are really important people to get an understanding about what they can do in that situation. It's not all about what happens within that SOC room. No, that's a good point. When I, so when I worked for law enforcement, we once, I think it was once a year, they used to run a um, an exercise where it would be basically a, a, a kind of disaster um, exercise. And it, it always changed each year. So one year we, we did, um, I think we did like an earthquake or something, which was a bit odd in the UK. But, um, but there was a diff different disaster each year. And that exercise would involve all of the services. So you'd have fire, ambulance, um, you know, police, um, coast, you know, everyone really. And it really, really does test both the response from those individual services, but also those cross services response as well in the communications. Yeah, a lot of people think that there's, that there's generally on a day to day basis, a lot of communication between all those services. I can tell you there isn't, unfortunately. Um, but under a crisis, there needs to be. I've been involved in one of the hostage taking scenarios run by the police. And it's a very eye opening experience to see how the different teams coordinate together and how they learn from what they're doing wrong. Because as you may know, Will, they don't hold back in instructions. Okay, right. Well, thank you guys for your input into incident response and the importance of war games. Let's jump straight into the key takeaways. I'm going to steal the first one and just basically say, listen to everything we said about tables of exercises. They are so important. They are so crucial and they allow you to prepare in the best way possible. And similar to that, I want everyone listening, regardless of level, to think about a tabletop exercise. If you're a junior analyst, approach it to the manager. If you are a manager, run one with your team. They can be run in so many different ways. They can be gamified, 
they don't have to be serious. What's important is that you learn from them. You just did the same one as me, man. Our listeners are going to be like, this guy's got no original content. <laughs> we'll allow it, though, because it's my point. So well, we agree with it. Anyway, enough of you. Will, please tell me you have something other than incident response to your key takeaway this week. I'll go with the. Um, I'll go along with um, Alex's point on the DNS um, stuff later earlier on. Um, you know, it's it's a really really key area. Um, and if if you don't know enough about it in your about what's going on with the, with your DNS um, in in your organisation, then spend some time with with, with the um, with the team that does and really get to um, get to grips with it. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, well, that wraps up another episode of the Hackable You podcast. Guys, again, thank you for spending some time chatting about the stuff we like to do. Thank you to everyone that's listened, everyone that's interacting with us on LinkedIn. We really do appreciate it. We've got loads of stuff planned and we're excited to bring more podcasts to you. Stick around for an announcement around our new series that we're looking to do, our mini interview series. But other than that, We wish you all the very best of weeks and have a good evening.